turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts, chapter 7. On this morning, we're going to be picking back up in verse 54. So Acts 7, starting at verse 54. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 916. 916. Well, on March 20th, 1563, a man by the name of John Fox partnered with the accomplished Protestant printer John Day to bring to the public the first edition of what became popularly known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. The book itself was something of a publishing marvel. There was nothing like it of its kind. It, it, was, it was huge. Uh, it consisted of 1,500 pages that were about a foot in length and two palms wide. So imagine something about the size of this podium here. It was illustrated with 60 woodcuts, so they'd engrave these woodcuts so they could print them. So it was illustrated with all these different things that they became very iconic, actually. And um, it could hardly be handled with one hand. It, uh, some people who have seen the first editions have said that it's like holding a baby. It's, it's enormous. At the time, it was the largest publishing project to have ever been taken, undertaken in England. And it actually had an enormous impact on the British landscape at a really important time in the English Reformation. So you could actually find this book in many churches, chained to a bench in the church for common use, so anyone could look at it and read it. As such, it grew to be immensely popular, shaping people's opinions, especially about the treatment of Protestants at the hands of Catholics, and particularly in England, but also abroad. You can actually still find it in print today, though I think I, think I read it's on, it's on the 57th printing. So it's, it's, it's been revised, it's been updated, it's not nearly that big. It's a lot more, uh, a lo little bit smaller, a little bit easier to handle. Now when Fox wrote this book, he, he wanted it uh, to, the purpose of this book was to affirm the Reformation in England. And through this book, what, it, what his goal was to, was to help affirm the split of the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, showing that it was a legitimate move. So in this book, he starts at the very beginning with Stephen, and then tracing the life and death of many of Christ's faithful witnesses, he arrived at his current day. So he was drawing Christian history across the spectrum in a way that people of his day could see and understand. Now, it's a book which is worth checking out if you get a chance for many reasons, not just because of its historical significance, but really because of the account that Fox gives for all of these different instances of people who were faithful to Christ even to death. As strange as it might sound, it's, it's a book that's actually really immensely encouraging. Because it helps, I think, it helps believers to feel the gravity of Christ's call on our lives and his, the faithfulness of his hold on us as he keeps us. It's a book that helps us to think about what's really most important, which preserves the faithful witness of some of these men and women who had counted the riches of the glory of Christ above even their own lives. Now, when you read a book like that, or maybe when you look at some of these publications of modern-day groups like uh, the, Voice of the, the Voice of the Martyrs, if you're familiar with that, when you read a book like that as a follower of Jesus, it's really it's impossible not to be moved by it. I got, as I was working on this sermon, I was reading some of the entries, and I just got caught up in it. And then I had to, I had to close out because it was, it was getting intense. 
it seems like when you read that, you invariably come away asking yourself, what would I do if something like that were to happen to me? What, what if I were put in a position like that? What would I do? Would I stand for Christ as, that, as they did? Or would I cave? It's a challenging question. And it is challenging to read these really cruel accounts of men and women who were put to the sword, nailed to crosses, burned at the stake, thrown to wild animals, stoned, beaten to death, and cruelly tortured. And yet they kept the faith. And even then as you're reading some, as you're reading these amazing accounts of the people who suffered and also how their witness actually became uh, the people who killed them, believed because of what they had seen. It's convicting to, to read or to hear some of the epithets that, are, that, are, that mark the graves of the Christians in the catacombs of Rome. Here lives Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Lawrence to his sweetest son, born away of angels. Victorious in peace and in Christ, being called away, he went in peace. Words you wouldn't expect to be written over someone who was, who was murdered or who was broken by, the, by wild animals. The, the lives of the martyrs force us to count the cost of being a disciple of Christ. But more fundamentally, they mean to testify to us that Jesus is faithful, that he is worthy of us following him. And that, as Jim Elliott famously put it, we are not fools to trade what we cannot keep to gain we cannot lose. This morning, we're looking at Luke's account of the martyrdom of Stephen. As we do so, I think it's important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write these things for our instruction, not to conflict us with hypotheticals about what we might do if we found ourselves called to suffer for the sake of Christ, but rather to teach us about the power of the love of Jesus which preserved Stephen, and which will preserve us as we go into every circumstance. So with that, let's turn to the scriptures. If you would, please stand out of respect for God's word as I read from, chapter, from Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 54, and then into chapter 8, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they, that is the Jewish council, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the Greek word, marturo, 
from which we get our English word martyr, actually means to be a witness, to testify, to affirm something that you have seen or heard. And I think that definition is helpful for us to bear in mind as we take a deep look at Stephen's martyrdom. You see, it's, it's easy to get wrapped up around the details of Stephen's death. And when, when, it's, and when it's clear, really, that in recording, I think Steve, that Luke's goal in this is to point us, really, to Stephen's witness, to his testimony about Jesus. Luke does record Stephen's death, but he's much more concerned that you see and hear what Stephen had to say and what his blood shows. Now, we're not meant to come away from this, I think, this passage venerating Stephen, although I think we should commend his faithfulness. We're really meant to come away from this passage in awe of Christ. It was not Stephen's own power which led him to hold fast to the truth even as he fell asleep in death. It was the work of the Holy Spirit and it was the love of Christ which went with him, which sustained him, and which ushered him into the divine presence of God. And that's really what I want to draw your attention to this morning. While I want you to be challenged by Stephen's example, I don't want anyone to go out of here today navel-gazing, musing to themselves about whether or not they would have the strength to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Instead, I, I, want, I want to see the power that was at work in Stephen, which led him, even in the face of death, to have joy and even peace. And I want you to be enamored with the glory and the love of Christ who goes with his people, who himself suffered and died and conquered through his life. I want you to go from this place in peace and in confidence in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And I want you to be strengthened and changed by the same love of Christ that strengthened and kept Stephen, a love that is stronger than death. So that brings us to our, the main idea of our passage and the main idea of our sermon of this sermon this morning, which is this. The love of Christ is stronger than death. The love of Christ is stronger than death. And by that love, God's people endure. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at that love in three ways as we see it in Stephen's life. First, I want to look at the love of Christ in Stephen. The love of Christ in Stephen. Second, we want to look at the love of Christ for Stephen. His love for Stephen. And finally, we want to look at the love of Christ through Stephen. We will look at it through Stephen. So let's begin by looking at how the love of Christ was displayed in Stephen. Luke has said a lot about Stephen since he was first introduced all the way back in chapter 6. And up till now, we, as we've been reading about him, we've learned a lot about him uh, from what he said uh, while he was on trial before this ruling council. Stephen was a man who was full of godliness, faith, integrity, wisdom, grace, and peace. But more than that, Stephen was a man who lived his life filled with the Holy Spirit in this relationship that comes to those who are united to Christ by faith. There's a big difference we see between the way that Stephen conducted himself before this council and the way that the council responded to him. That difference, Luke means for us to understand, was brought about through the Holy Spirit. That's really what the defining feature of Stephen is, according to verse 55. 
While these men who sat in judgment on the council were enraged at what they heard, were so angry that they ground their teeth in him, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, is there gazing into heaven, seeing the glory of God with Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father on his throne. Now compare that to what Stephen had said in verse 51 about this council and these men who had rejected Jesus, the righteous one of God. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Time and time again, as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, we've seen the vital role that the Holy Spirit plays in the daily lives of believers. That, that's not a feature that's unique to the book of Acts. Actually, if we, if we remember back to John chapter 3, Jesus had told Nicodemus that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Spirit is the one who applies the work of Christ to us. Just as it it was the Spirit who empowered the work of creation, so He is the one who works to empower the new creation that takes place in God's people as they are united to His work through faith. That really, as we look at these two parties, Stephen and the council, that's the vivid difference between these so-called righteous men who were resisting the Holy Spirit and Stephen who was full of the Spirit. Jesus plainly connects the Holy Spirit to his kingdom work in John chapter 16 when he told his disciples that it was actually to their advantage that he was going away since only then could the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, come to them. It's the Spirit who works to convict people of their sin who awakens dead hearts and brings them to life. The Spirit is the one who testifies to us about the excellency of Christ. He draws our attention, not to himself, but to Jesus. He is the one who guides God's people into truth. He is the inheritance of every disciple of Christ, everyone who has been united to Jesus by faith. And this, 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 this life that we see, this commendable life of Stephen, this is the result of the Spirit's work. Even as these men ground their teeth at Stephen like a, like a pack of enraged wild animals, Stephen is filled with peace and serenity. It's like, when you're reading this, it's like he's not even aware of the looks that are on these men's faces. And as we look at verse 55, we see why. He's too busy looking at the glory of God and the face of Jesus to notice. Oh, can can you imagine what Stephen must have seen on that day? Can you imagine it? One minute, Stephen is speaking about the God of glory, and the next, he is seeing that God of glory, and he couldn't, take, he couldn't look away from it. This, this is the moment when Stephen's faith became sight, when he saw the hope of his heart fulfilled. Jesus Christ, the righteous, standing in arraignment of his divine glory before the very throne of God, gazing back at him. Once you've caught sight of that glory, you can never go back. The book of Exodus tells us how Moses' face took on a certain unearthly glow after he had seen just the trailing end of God's glory on the mountain. There's no coming down for Stephen, only a going up. And what's more, in verse 56, Stephen, even as he's on trial, starts to tell the men who have him there about what he's seeing. He said, behold, that's an old way. Look, 
I see the heavens open and the, the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Won't you look? Now this statement in and of itself is immensely profound because in calling Jesus the Son of Man, Stephen is connecting him back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, by doing so, he is making a statement to the council about the divinity of Jesus, confessing that Jesus is the conquering, the victorious, the crowned God-man. He's also repeating and confirming what Jesus had told this very council leading up to his crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 26, we read about how that the high priest adjured Jesus to tell him whether or not he was the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus had answered him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, this is not a small thing for Stephen to say this at this moment. He is seeing and telling the council exactly what Jesus had told them. And he is appealing to them, look, see the Son of God, see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who is at God's right hand. But they would not. And upon hearing Stephen's confession, Luke says that they, they plugged their ears and they cried out with a loud voice to, to drown out his voice so they couldn't hear any more. And together they rushed at him and they sought to silence him by putting him to death. But Stephen was filled with the Spirit, and as such, he was filled with a love for Christ. That, that's really the crux of the issue for us as we think about Stephen's final moments. The word love gets thrown around a lot in our world. I, I throw it around plenty. I, I love pizza. I love my dog. I love my... Like, like, there's all sorts of levels of love, and we use it for all sorts of things. So... It can mean lots of different things. And, and so when I say that this love was filling Stephen, let, let me be clear. That the sort of love that we are talking about is a love of the highest and most excellent degree. We're talking about a love that made Stephen value Jesus over his own life. We're talking about the sort of love that Polycarp had for his Lord when his persecutors demanded he revile Jesus and answer them, Eighty-six years have I served him, and never once has he wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? We're talking about the love that Paul described to the Philippians when he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's the love we're talking about. It's a, it's a supernatural love, stronger than death, which filled Stephen with peace, not dread, even as these men were coming after him. This, this love is essential. Because without it, there is no way that any of us can take joy in the sufferings we encounter in this world. I mean, James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. How can you do that? You do it with this love. The defining feature of God's holy ones 
is that they love Him more than anything, even their own lives. Revelation 12, verse 11 puts it like this, describing that. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Likewise, James 1, verse 12 declares, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Stephen models what that love looks like for us here. This, this love wrought by the Spirit in his heart held him steadfast under his trial. He stood the test, and so he received the prize of God's promise, a promise given to those who love him. The key to standing firm in Christ and the testimony he has called us to bear as his witnesses is to love Christ above all else. Love is what preserves God's people in the very worst of circumstances. Love is what satisfies us in times of need and which preserves us from idolatry when we are in times of plenty. Love is what leads us to hold our possessions, our comforts, our livelihoods, even our very lives loosely to follow Christ on the path of the cross. And that brings us now to see the love of Christ for Stephen. Having seen the way that Stephen loved Jesus, we also need to see the way that Jesus loved Stephen. Actually, we need to understand that the reason that Stephen loved Christ the way that he did, first and foremost, was because of the way that Christ had loved him. The love that we are seeing displayed in Stephen's life, it isn't natural. It is not natural for a person to be willing to give their life for another. The cross is foolishness to the world, but it is not to the believer because we have come to know and experience God's love displayed in Christ, which he has for us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, our fears are chased away by the light of this love, which God has for us. The sort of love that we see in Stephen, which was at work to preserve him, even as he was being killed for his faith, was produced, it was forged first in the heart of God. 1 John 4 says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. We love because he first loved us. Now, you might, if this is your first experience with Stephen, or with this passage, you might be thinking to yourself, how on earth can you say that God loves Stephen, when after all, Stephen died for his love of Jesus and his testimony? I mean, Stephen pays for his, for his testimony here. And I'd like to answer that question from what we see in the vision into heaven, which God gave Stephen in the final moments of his life. First of all, we see God's love for Stephen even in those final moments by the fact that he gave him this vision in the first place. Look, death is a scary thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. God called Stephen to die, but he brought Stephen through that death. The reason Stephen seems almost oblivious to the looks of hatred that are on the faces of these men at the, who sat on the council is because he was too busy seeing the pleasure of his heavenly Father and the glory of his Redeemer firsthand. 
like it's almost like um, with Peter as he stepped out onto the boat uh, you know under the stormy waves of the sea to walk with Christ so we also see Stephen stepping out under these stormy waves of death not looking at the waves and their fury but rather looking at the love written on the face of his Lord and so he boldly went God called Stephen to give his life, but he also preserved Stephen through the ordeal of death to crown him with an eternal life. The vision itself shows us how precious Stephen's confession and his sacrifice was in the sight of God. And the second thing we see, we see God's love for Stephen in what Stephen describes, actually what he describes about Jesus, what Jesus is doing in this vision. When Jesus was on trial, remember, he told that council that from now on they would see the Son of Man, that's himself, seated at the right hand of God, coming on the clouds of heaven. But do you notice a difference here? In the vision that Stephen receives, Jesus is standing at God's right hand. That, that is a profound distinction. And it has caused scholars to tear their hair out as to figure out exactly what's going on there. I think there are probably there's a it's a rich thing and i think there's a combination of at least two reasons for this distinction first is this that when we see the bible talking about how the son of man is seated we often find him actually sitting in judgment that explains why jesus would tell the council that they would see him seated whereas with stephen jesus is standing not in judgment but in affirmation. As heaven watched Stephen glorify Jesus, even at the cost of his own life, Jesus is there, standing, almost as if he's standing with Stephen, strengthening him and bringing him home. And connected to that, the second reason I think that Stephen sees Jesus standing is that at this moment, it seems like Stephen is getting a vision into another trial that is being had, one that is being had in a heavenly courtroom. Now, Stephen was condemned by this earthly court, but even as these men grind their teeth and they scream at him and run at him, we see a higher court, whereas Jesus stands, where, where Jesus is standing witness before God the Father, acknowledging Stephen as his own. This one is mine. In Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. I think that is the best explanation for what we see at this moment in Stephen's life. In those final moments, Stephen actually gets to see Jesus, his defender, his witness, guaranteeing his place with God. As James M. Boyce writes, I do not know what the Lord Jesus Christ says when he looks down, sees us, and pleases our case before the Father, though I am sure it varies in every case. But I do know that if we are his, he owns us and pleads our case in heaven. He says, in effect, this one is mine, that one is mine. I died for these people. My death covered their sin. They are clothed in my righteousness. So as we gaze into heaven with Stephen, we get a glimpse of the love that God has for his people. The very love which we've seen produces love for him in our own hearts and the love that holds us fast in every circumstance. Now, 
I totally missed this in my announcements. Happy Mother's Day. Today is Mother's Day, and this is hardly a Mother's Day sermon, but I want to say I am so thankful for all the mothers that are in my life, and I know that you are as well. There is no love quite like the love that a mother has for her children. But even that love pales in comparison with the love that God has for his people. Isaiah 49 verse 15 asks, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Answer, no. Even these, though, may forget. Yet, God says, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus didn't forget Stephen, did he? He stood beside the throne of God the Father and confessed him as his own. If Stephen's death makes us question God's love for him, then perhaps it is because we have a hard time viewing this world through the lens of eternity. Like Vanity Fair, our world prizes comfort above all else. That's why Jesus' call to the cross seems so foolish. But the comfort of God's people is eternal. And the scriptures tell us that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. No, no mother, no mother worth her salt would be content for her child to have second best if it was in her power to give, her something, to give them something better. And so, speaking as a parent, I'll just say, if a parent pries something out of a child's hand, it's not because they don't love them. It's because they want to give them something better. That's why Jesus calls us to the cross. Because this life is temporary. It is but a seed, but a shadow of a greater reality to come. The trivial joys and pleasures of this world are a candle to the sun compared to the joy and the pleasure that God has secured for his children in his presence with himself. The love of Christ is evident for Stephen in that even though he called him to put off his life, he clothed him with an eternal life. Love sustains us even in the midst of suffering as it has sustained all the martyrs and the witnesses who have come before us because it is established on the rock of Christ who gave his own life, going to the cross for us in the joy that was set before him. Whatever pain we may face in this life, however severe, and I know that there are many of you here today who are suffering with immense pain. I know that. We must remember, though, that this is a temporary pain that is not worthy of comparing to the surpassing richness and the glory that we have in Christ. We must remember that God is working all things for our good, namely for our holiness, to fill us with a steadfast joy, even now, but ultimately to prepare us for greater joys to come. The author of Hebrews exhorts us in chapter 12 this way. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the word, maturo, Okay, so connect that. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he goes on to say to his original audience and then also to us, in, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, 
do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that whom his father does not discipline? Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best for them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's how we see the love of God for us, even in the midst of our suffering. We know it has a point. We know that it has a purpose of holiness. Stephen is a witness to, how, to just how deep the, father lo- the Father's love for us goes. God did not abandon Stephen in his time of need. He sustained him, and he received him into glory. As we see in verse 60, Luke records that Stephen, after he had been driven out of the city, as they were stoning him, called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus heard that prayer, and Stephen, being absent from the body, was gathered into the presence of his Lord. As we read this, we are reminded that death death is not the end for a believer. That's why Luke says that Stephen fell asleep. He's not saying he got knocked unconscious. He died. But it was a temporary thing. That's not to take away anything about the grisly brutality of how Stephen was put to death. But I think that Luke records it that way to put death in a right perspective for us. Because Jesus was crushed by being crushed for us, death no longer has a sting for us. That sting has been removed. We know that because Jesus lives, so also we will live with him. And he has a love for us that is stronger than death. That brings us to our third point this morning, the love of Christ through Stephen. Now, I think perhaps the most powerful display of Jesus' love for Stephen and Stephen's love for Jesus that we see in this passage might be in what Stephen says as he's being killed. Because it's in Stephen's final words that we see the love of Christ for him and the love of Christ in him coming together to pour out the love of Christ onto others through him. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 58, Luke tells us that this council, that the highest Jewish court in Israel completely lost their heads and they rushed Stephen out of the city where they stoned him. Now we know that the council was actually not allowed to do this. They were not supposed to execute anybody without approval from the Roman governor. But clearly, they were too angry at Stephen to worry about what Pilate might do. He had his hands full with other matters and they just don't care. As we look about the laws that were governing a stoning, we actually, there are strict guidelines for how to actually carry that out, which are described in the teachings of the Mishnah. And as we look at what Luke has recorded, uh, it does appear that some of, the, that some of the, that these people made somewhat of an attempt to follow those guidelines. Uh, that's why we have these witnesses mentioned. But actually, this is really more mob justice. This does not follow the stipulations at all. This is more like people are just they're just mad and they're throwing rocks at him. The point of this is that Stephen is being murdered here. He was innocent, but it doesn't matter. These men hated him. They hated his words, and most of all, they hated Christ. Even still, Luke tells us that as they were stoning him, Stephen is praying. Not only that, not only did he pray confessing Jesus as Lord, saying, "Lord Jesus, take my life." But he also was praying to his Lord for his murderers. 
Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And with that, Luke says, Stephen fell asleep. It's uncanny as we look at the connections between Stephen's death and that of Jesus, how close they are. Both were killed outside Jerusalem. Both were charged with blasphemy, even though they only spoke truth. Both stood before a phony court. And both prayed for the men who murdered them. Even as Stephen is being killed, his love for Christ remains strong, and clearly the love of Christ likewise flowed through him to others. When someone is laying down their life for something, it leaves an impression. But when they forgive, it makes an even greater impact. You've got to wonder how these men were able to keep throwing stones at Stephen even as he's praying for them. I mean, they, they actually had, they had to take their hands off their ears so they could pick up these rocks. So they definitely heard what he was saying. So clearly, it shows that the hearts of these men were really, they were harder than the stones they threw at him. But God heard Stephen's prayer. In verse 58, Luke introduces us to a young man by the name of Saul. Saul was from Tarsus. He was a student of the respected Pharisee, Gamaliel, who had warned this same council not to do what they were doing. But despite this warning, Luke says he act, that Saul actually approved of Stephen's execution. Some scholars think that means that perhaps Saul was on this council, that he had cast his vote against Stephen. Uh, I don't think so so much. I think Saul had a, had a very good working relationship with this council, but I doubt he was actually on it. What we do know is that Saul is the one who is put in charge watching the garments of the false witnesses who threw these stones at Stephen and killed him. So, though he may not have thrown the stones, he is a facilitator of Stephen's death. Not only that, as we will see next week, this same Saul is going to take things further. He's going to become one of the bitterest enemies that the church has seen, going house to house, arresting believers and having them committed to prison. But God had a plan for Saul, also known as Paul. And Luke, under divine inspiration, has really done a masterful job weaving him into the story here. Because not long after this, we're going to see that God is actually going to save Saul. He was going to take that hard, fleshly heart out, and he was going to replace it with a heart of faith, a heart like Stephen. Though at this point, Saul is breathing out hatred against Christ and his church, we're going to see that Saul actually is going to be captured by the love of Jesus, a love which flowed to him at this very moment through Stephen and his prayer. This is not a coincidence in the text. As we read about Saul and about Stephen's prayer, we are meant to connect the dots between how God is working, even in the death of Stephen, to save sinners like Saul. What this counsel meant for evil, God meant for good. And I have to believe that Stephen's prayer actually played a role, played a part in God's purpose of Saul's life. The church father, Augustine of Hippo, once remarked that if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. And I think he's right insofar as what we understand, that God really does hear the prayers of his people. And he really does answer them in a powerful way to the glory of Jesus. There, there's no way, as Stephen prayed, that he had any clue about what God was going to do in the life of this young man who watched the coats of those who were killing him. But God did. And I think that puts a whole new perspective on the power of the love of God which flowed through Stephen onto those around him. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard. But it requires, it's hard because it requires us to die to ourselves. 
We've all had people hurt us, some of us in terrible ways. We may feel that we have the right to hold them accountable for what they have done to us. But Jesus calls us to forgive. Stephen had a reason to hold a grudge against these men. But then again, he didn't. Because Stephen himself had received a greater forgiveness in the grace of God. And because of the love of Christ for him and in him, he had no greater pleasure in this moment than to show that love to others, even his enemies. Jesus says that if anyone would be his disciple, he must deny himself, he must give up those desires which are most natural to him, and he must take up a cross and follow him. The life we live in Christ is not our own. Stephen shows us that what it really means to follow Jesus, not just because of the way he died physically, but also because of the way he died to himself, forgiving men like Saul, pleading with God, forgive them. You could argue that Stephen would have been right in this moment to call for God's vengeance. And, and I suppose you, be, you wouldn't be wrong. But I, I would rather, if that's the way you're thinking about this, I would ask you to look at the effect of the grace that Stephen showed as he used his final breath to pray for his persecutors. We owe most of what we have in the New Testament to the way that God used this man, Paul. And while I think it would be too much to say that Saul wouldn't have been saved if Stephen hadn't prayed for him like this, I do think we should see the connection and recognize how the grace of God was at work already in this moment to liberate Saul from his sin and to unite him to freedom in Christ. This morning we've looked at Christ's love for Stephen, which resulted in a love displayed through him and in him. But here we also see how the love of Christ was displayed through him, how it flowed through him. While we mourn that Stephen was treated this way, and while it is right to desire that God's justice be upheld, I think we also need to take time to meditate on how God's love worked through Stephen in a way that no one there outside the walls of Jerusalem watching all this take place ever imagined. Stephen didn't pray that God would forgive these men because he wanted to be quaint. He prayed this because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled by the love of Christ, and filled with an eager desire to see Jesus exalted as King and Redeemer in the lives of all. He saw a purpose to his suffering, and so he gladly exchanged the temporary to receive the eternal. His greatest treasure was the glory of his Lord. That's why he prayed. And that is why he prayed for men like Saul. That's love. And that's the power of the love of Christ in his people. Our lives are not our own. In Christ we are forgiven. So let us stand fast in that love, by that love, and let us show that love to others. Let's pray. Our great God and King, You have loved us with an everlasting love. You have loved us by sending your own beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty of our sin. You have forgiven us. And Father, this morning, if there's anything we are holding against someone else, I pray that you would so fill us with a vision of the glory of Christ that it would be an easy thing, actually, for us to forgive that compared to the riches of what we have received, these things that we might hold against others would just seem cheap. 
Father, you know our pain. You know all the ways we have been wronged. We know all the ways we have wronged others. You do not call us to forsake justice, but to trust entrust justice to you. And Father, I pray that you give us grace to do that. And as we do that, Father, I pray that we would also be caught up in the love of Christ and sustained by it, so that whatever we go through, we would show love to others. I pray this in his holy name. Amen.